across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fawson. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or at the web. VeteransRadio.org is our new URL, VeteransRadio.org. Where we're on the web 24-7, you can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.org. And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at LegalHelpForVeterans.com. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today, Navy veteran Lee Bidot. I'm sure I didn't get that right. Help me out on the French pronunciation <laughs> of this uh, Louisiana girl. <laughs> it's Lee Bio. Everything's silent. It's very French. <laughs> okay. And uh, uh, Lee, you grew up in Louisiana. And yes. ended up in the Navy. How did a nice girl like you end up in the Navy? <laughs> Great question. Uh, I was in I was in college. I was in college in New Orleans when 9-11 happened. And um, I think when you're a teenager, you're very, very self-involved. And um, whenever that happened, it just sort of woke me up to uh, the idea that there's so much going on in the world outside of myself. And I felt called to serve. So I dropped out of school and gave up my scholarship and enlisted in the Navy. How did the family take those two decisions? They did not take them well. (laughs) (laughs) My parents parents called a friend at the Pentagon and tried to get me out of the contract. It was hilarious. Um, But it it all worked out very well for me. I ended up um, taking the D-Lab and and becoming a a linguist, an Arabic linguist. And um, it was an excellent decision for me personally and professionally. From, from the jump. So. And you spent six years in the Navy from 2002 to uh, 2008. Tell us a little bit about what you did. Sure. So, you know, um, as, a, as a linguist, we actually spend a couple of years, almost two, two years in school in California, which, um, guys, if you're going to enlist in the military, <laughs> go for languages. Not a bad, not a bad nice. tour if you can get it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. so spent a couple of years doing that and then was based um, mostly out of the D.C. area um, at the National Security Agency, which was a little a little funny as a sailor. I never really spent time on a ship, and most of the time I went to work in an office with civilians. So I was one of the only um, enlisted folks in my office on our particular target. 
And then in 2007, I was given the opportunity to TDY um, with SEAL Team 7 and 10 and spent um, about a year attached to those teams. And we deployed into Fallujah and spent some time over there. And um, again, an excellent opportunity for personal growth and, and professional growth. And, and that led to the uh, decision you know, everybody has to make, is it time to get out of the service? And you did in 08, and it looks like you immediately transitioned to the next three-letter agency in the, in the government. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it, like, it was towards the end of that deployment, actually, one of, the, uh, one of the SEALs that I was working with was asking what I was going to do when I got out. And I, I knew when I enlisted, I had to finish my degree. So I worked on my, my degree while I was in, you know every opportunity I was able to take night classes and stuff, I was continuing my education. So I was close to finishing by the time I got out of um, the military. In any case, this um, this man that I worked with sort of suggested that I look at, actually, it's kind of, kind of a funny conversation. I said, well, I'm thinking about finishing my degree and joining the State Department. <laughs> Not to bash the State Department, but his response was, oh, the State Department's a bunch of nerds. You should join the CIA. <laughs> So, you know, he he had worked at the CIA prior to becoming a SEAL. Um, He worked at the CIA in the 90s and then went through BUDS kind of at an older age. So he was able to give me a little bit of insight into what that would look like. And um, he gave me some confidence, too. You know, he said, hey, you're a female. You've got combat experience. You've got this language ability like you'd be a shoe in. So um, so I I went home and applied. and, And honestly, I was shocked. Every time they called me back for another interview or hiring process, you know, thing, every time I was like, really, I can't believe this is happening. But but then it did. So over the course of a year or so while I was finishing my bachelor's degree is, is whenever I was going through that hiring process. And we, we should mention that uh, you did get your bachelor's in Middle East studies from George Washington University in Washington, D.C. And again, yes. with that combination of... Uh, uh, study in that area, the linguistic skills, the overseas uh, experience uh, that the Navy gave you, um, it kind of sounds like you fit right in at the CIA. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I guess another kind of anecdote was they called to put me in a particular class and I hadn't finished my degree yet. They were like, hey, we want to put you in you know, the January class. And I said, well, I don't graduate till May. Am I going to lose my slot? And and the hiring official was like, I don't know if I can guarantee you a slot later or something like that. And I remember saying, it's starting to sound like a Navy recruiter. <laughs> well, and I said, I said, I'm the perfect candidate for this position. And it, you know, Jim, it came out of my mouth, and it was the most. I think it's the most confident thing I've ever said in my life. And I don't have that kind of confidence. <laughs> it just came out of my mouth, and I'm so glad I said it because she was like, okay we'll put you in the, you know, the next class or whatever. And yeah. So and boy, you, I wish, I wish I still had that same confidence <laughs> that I did back then. I was a, a go-getter. Well, now as a mother of two, your confidence level is uh, in a whole nother area. So, but, Whew. but let's talk about, uh, you know, give us a thumbnail of your six years there. And then I want to transition to what you did afterwards. Sure. Oh, but the, so, okay, so while, um, so while I was in this, I, mean, I can't talk a whole lot about what I did there, but my focus was Middle East and North Africa, um, and uh, it's, a, it's kind of a lonely job in a way, because there is a lot of um, having to misrepresent who you are to achieve certain goals, 
And um, I feel like I worked with some amazing people and we worked on some amazing operations, but at the end of the day, it's a pretty lonely job. And so um, after about five years, I think I started thinking this might not be the right place for me anymore. And I really wanted to have a family and um, the pace at which I was operating didn't really allow for that. So I took some leave without pay and came home for a little while. And I tell you what, the plane touched down here in Louisiana, and I spent about a week here before I was like, I'm not going back. <laughs> well, that's part of the transition I want to talk about. You had spent, uh, a, you know, better than, I don't know what it all adds up to, but, uh, you know, 10 years in the D.C. area yeah. and and going back home to rural Louisiana, um, we were talking before we started recording about St. Landry Parish, where you're at, and it's all, all, all 3,000 people of it. Um, <laughs> a big change of pace in life, is, is was that transition something that you were yearning for, or it finally smacked you in the face and said, this is what you need? Wow, that's a, yeah, that's a great question. I think it kind of smacked me in the face. Um I really grew to a point where I was not happy in D.C. And, you know, as much as as amazing as that town is, it is very transitional. It is very um, selfish in a way, very egotistical. People are um, climbing the career ladder. Um, and I felt a lack of a sense of community there. Uh, and, you know, I found whenever I wasn't overseas, whenever I wasn't deployed, whenever I was in the city, I was constantly seeking to get out. All of my hobbies involved being outdoors, trail running, orienteering, uh, which is like a kind of a hobby form of land navigation. Um, so I was always kind of out of the city anyway. And that's not to say, again, I think DC is an amazing city. And boy, if you ever get the chance to live there, there's so many free things to do and so much culture. And that's amazing. But as far as the opportunity to connect with other human beings, I felt that that was lacking. I would make friends and everybody was TDYing and moving to a different job, moving to a different city, kind of coming in and out. So there wasn't a stable sense of community. And that's what I needed. And that's what I have here in Louisiana. And one of the things that you did uh, was um, obtain your master's of clinical mental health at -hmm. Louisiana State University. And you are now a licensed professional counselor working with folks, uh, you know, working their way through trauma of various sorts. Mm-hmm. But part of your story was you had also experienced trauma during your careers in the Navy and, and at the CIA that you were working and processing through. And I think one of the challenges everybody has is kind of making that first step of, you know, maybe I need to talk to somebody. Help help us understand how you got to that point and, and what you're doing now for folks. Okay. Yeah. So... Yes. Um, one of the one of the traumas that I experienced um, while I was in the CIA, actually, it took me almost a year to seek help for it. And I think what I found was that, um, you know, so I'm also a licensed addiction counselor. I'm not sure if, if you knew that, but it, it's funny. Someone will come to me and kind of say, uh, my wife left me. My dog doesn't want me to pet him. Um, you know, I've lost weight. Like all these things, right. and like, well, maybe you should stop drinking, you know, right? But, but as a therapist, it's really not my job well, to say that. Well, like as, a, as a veteran's disability lawyer, we call that self-medicating. It sounds a lot better than, uh, but that's what they're doing, yes. 
<laughs> right. So I think, you know, for me, that's what kind of drove me to seek help was sort of feeling like, wow, everything, it, it almost felt like the world was out to get me or like everything just kind of kept going wrong. And one day I was kind of like, ooh, maybe it's not them. Maybe it's me, you know? So um, like, maybe it's not the world. Maybe it's me. So I did, you know, I did kind of reach out and get some help. And what I thought was so neat was um, part of that process with, one therapist in particular in, in DC was processing um, a pretty significant trauma. And then after that, I kept seeing her and I laughed because this poor woman, and I, I email her here and there and say, thank you. But this poor woman listened to me kind of come in and um, vent, I guess, for lack of a better word about the same stuff over and over. And she just kept offering emotional support, emotional support, you know, every, every couple of weeks or every, every month or so when I'd go in until finally one day I said, I think I might need to resign from this job. Like, I'm not sure if this is a healthy place for me to be anymore. And then she was like, okay, well, let's, you know, let's talk about that. You know, what are the pros and cons? And <laughs> She's thinking, how, why did it take you so long to get there? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And that's, you know, I mean, I feel like that's kind of part of what, like, you know, as a therapist, I feel like people make the mistake sometimes of thinking that therapists either don't talk at all or they tell you what to do. And that's not what it is. It's you come in and you tell me what you need from me. Do you need me to, to be emotionally supportive? Are you trying to make a change? What are your goals and how can I get you to those goals? Right. And, and sometimes you don't even know what those goals are. So I'm going to sit and I'm going to listen and be empathetic and, and provide that safe space where you can be vulnerable until we figure it out. Why did it, uh, it, it go back to this issue that I think many veterans have, which is we don't want to ask for help? Yeah. Can Can you enlighten us a little bit of how to get through that? As you said, it took you a year to even say, "Well, maybe I need it." Um, help us understand how we can get over our own emotional hurdles there. Yeah, uh, I think. Well, so some of the myths around therapists, you know, um, just knowing, I don't know if that's answering your question or not, but um, this idea that all therapists are alike, I think you have to get over the idea that you might have to go see more than one um, to see who's a good fit for you. I also think with veterans in particular, there's this idea of um, if I go see a therapist about my trauma, all we, all we can talk about is the trauma. And I guess I want to reassure veterans that um, sometimes real life can be harder than deployments. I know that sounds strange, but it's like, I don't know, for me, I know I really struggled with the idea of feeling like, how did I do all of these things? And then when I'm not deployed, like when I'm back in D.C. or even now today with the kids, you know, how did I do all this stuff where there are like life and death situations and serious things happening? And I handled it with grace. And then real life is so challenging sometimes. And I think sometimes that's embarrassing for veterans because they're like, well, I want to go get, get help, but I feel silly because really what I'm struggling with is I'm irritated with the everyday um, stressors. The it's job, not, the job, the the kids, the wife, the spouse, whatever it might be, yes. is, is sort of the closest issue that, you know, you kick the dog that's closest to you. Yes. Yes. But, but there's probably an underlying uh, moral injury, and in, and in, and that's one of the areas that you focus on in trauma, is is is, yes. is is trying to get to that moral injury. Can you explain that word a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So, 
Moral injury is is the idea that, you know, we grow up with a certain set of beliefs about um, the world around us and about ourselves as human beings. You know, um, so so oftentimes, um, so you think about things like, as a veteran, for example, you might go into a war zone thinking, I'm brave. I'm a soldier. I'm brave. I believe in this mission. I believe in, um, you know, the United States government's mission here, et cetera, all those things. And then you might come out of that deployment on the other end feeling like, ooh, I'm not as brave as I thought I was. Or perhaps this mission's a little bit fuzzier than I thought I was. And there was, as a result of some of those experiences, it can make you feel like, it can make you feel shame about yourself. It can make you feel um, like a monster. You know, I've, I mean, I've had people talk about experiences where, uh, or vice versa, Jim. I've also had veterans that kind of come and say, hey, um, I'm really struggling with, as an example, I'm really struggling because I really enjoyed the violence and I kind of don't know what to do with that now. Right. I mean, that's a moral injury in and of itself. Like, so, so according to your beliefs, it's okay to be violent when you're in a war zone and when it's directed, but now kind of, what do I do with that in my civilian life? Um, yeah. We, we you, you talk to a lot of guys who, uh, uh, the adrenaline junkie part of it was uh, something that the rush of that is something that they can't replicate or they're trying to replicate and can't uh, in civilian life, and that turns them kind of upside down as well. Um, yes, yeah. It, it, it's about your personal experience of kind of the actions that you've taken. So, And when you talk about moral injury, there are different types. So it could be, you know, I don't want to go into the whole kind of um, continuing education credit on it, but, um, you know, it could be that you have an act that was violent and kind of against your beliefs and didn't report it a, ki- a kind of moral injury. Or it could be something where, you know, you committed some sort of violent act that retrospect you feel like was not who you were. And then you're left feeling a lot of shame. You're left feeling a lot of disconnect from other people. Um, it can leave you feeling very isolated. We talk to a lot of veterans also who struggle with the transition. Um, you know, when you're in the military, you've got that very structured, the Navy has you in a very structured program or the Marines do, you know what you're wearing every day, you know what time you're doing it, you know, you know who's uh, the boss, all, all those sort of things. When you get into the civilian world and particularly as you're maybe going through two or three different jobs trying to find out where you fit, transition mm-hmm. turns out to be hard for a lot of people. Is that something that you see in the work that uh, you do? And I know you're involved in a Veterans Alliance, and maybe you can talk about that as well. Sure, yeah. Wow, I, I love the, the idea of, tra- like, I feel like that's that would be my wheelhouse. If I could pick specific veterans to work with, it would be, like, veterans coming out of, you know, multiple deployments that are trying to figure out what to do with the rest of their lives. Um, yes, I kind of, well, just for a second, a caveat to that, I guess, would be, um, Back to this idea of deployments. I hope people don't hate me for saying this, but I felt as if sometimes deployments can be almost selfish. And when I say that, especially if you're in a relationship, because when you're deployed, hmm, selfish is maybe not the right word. But um, yeah, when you're deployed, it's like other people are taking care of your laundry. People are cooking. You're not worrying about bills. You kind of have this built-in social network because you have to lean on your buddies because like who else are you going to, I mean, you know, it's like, because you're all going through this together, right? So there are a lot of things that are almost sort of taken care of for you. And then when you go home, you have to deal with 
the minutia of daily life and all of those things like paying bills and cooking and uh, getting, uh, you know, people back and forth and, and investing time in relationships, all of that um, takes a lot out of you and, and it can be really, it can be challenging and chaotic. So as far as the transition though goes, I think what happens is get out, people don't ask the right questions of themselves. And this is really related to like choosing a career. Do you want to work with people? Do you want to work outside? Do you want to go to school? Do you not want to go to school? Like those are some of the kinds of questions to ask as opposed to, you know, what career is prestigious or I don't know, or what career did your parents do? I think a lot of people make the mistake of falling into careers because they're either related to what they were doing in the military or it's because what they're because what their friends are doing, you know, as opposed to really kind of taking some time to look at what it is that fits your personality. Are you introverted or extroverted? You know what I mean? I don't know. I kind of feel like I'm babbling. No, no, I think that's, that's exactly right. And and again, it's part of this is uh, having, if you're, if you're really struggling with this, having a third party to talk to, and even just sometimes just articulating it out loud, you answer the question for yourself. Yeah. I, one of the things I want to talk about, because um, th- I think there's so many more opportunities to get help these days. This is getting in to see a uh, licensed professional uh, counselor, uh, an addiction specialist such as yourself or uh, somebody who works in this broad field. It doesn't, you don't have to be a millionaire to do this. Um, There are a lot of services available, free services, lower cost services, insurance. Talk to us a little bit about what I think is probably a financial worry of, of, I know I need, maybe I ought to go talk to somebody. Oh my God, I can't make my car payment. How can I go do that? Sure. I mean, you know, look, veteran specific, I'll, I'll, I'll give a plug to like givenhour.org is an organization where it's a collective of therapists across the country who volunteer hours. Now, of course, you may not be able to see someone indefinitely, but it's called givenhour.org. And if you're a veteran, you can see a therapist for free. Um, obviously, uh, if you're service connected or have some sort of deployment status, you can go to the VA and see as well um yeah it can be a little bit of a barrier i know that's something that i do with ava so you mentioned the acadian veteran alliance um which i guess i'll give a brief kind of overview of that we provide um a service we don't provide the treatment but we we send referrals so i do a ptsd assessment and send a referral for the stellate ganglion block which is a an injection in a bundle of nerves in your neck that helps to treat post-traumatic stress But beyond that, something I'm really passionate about through ABA is when each of these veterans come to us for that treatment, I say, hey, are you seeing a therapist? Some of them have no interest in seeing a therapist. That's fine. But if they want to see a therapist, how do we get through those barriers to see one? And yes, some of it is insurance. If you you don't have private insurance, that's okay. I kind of refer them to those given hour or other LPCs that kind of volunteer their time, um, send them to the VA etc. But I mean, you know, an, an easy kind of an easy resource is psychology today, and you can filter by whatever insurance you have. Um, it is, it can be a barrier if you have no insurance, 
But again, you know, that givenhour.org and the VA are good resources. Yeah, we, we don't want people sitting there thinking, well, I, I need to do it, but I don't have the resources to do it. As I say, today in almost every jurisdiction, uh, there's somebody somewhere who's going to step in and help you out. Finding them's kind of a challenge. But that's where, you know, you start at your local veteran service officer or local mm-hmm. uh, uh, veteran organization, and they're going to probably point you somewhere. We're talking to Leah Biel, who's a licensed professional counselor down in Lafayette, Louisiana. So, mm-hmm. but she's giving you advice that's that's broader than just hey, if you're in Louisiana, we can find you some help. You really do find this all over the country, don't you, Leah? Absolutely, Jim. And you know, we we actually get outreach from veterans out of the state of Louisiana with those types of questions. So, I am available as a resource. Um, And our email address for that is heal at supportava.org. And honestly, if there's a veteran out there that's like, I I need to see a therapist. I don't know how to go about finding one. I'm happy to help you. Um, We've had veterans from Wisconsin email us and and, and I'll help you navigate that. Yeah, you just need somebody to point in the right direction, Lee. And that's that's a wonderful service that you're doing. I read uh, your story and what you were doing on uh, some news aggregator that caught a uh, NOLA.com uh, article. Uh, yeah. I said, wow, I got to talk to this lady and uh, <laughs> actually use psychology today to reach out to you and, and got a quick response. So uh, I, I do appreciate that. You've had an uh, interesting career, uh, both in the Navy and the CIA, and now as a, a mother of two. But uh, I think the work that you're doing, helping people through their individual struggles and trauma is uh, maybe the one of the most important things that you're going to do in life so we really appreciate you taking time today to talk to veterans radio jim i appreciate you having me on and i'm very passionate about mental health Um, i wouldn't be doing this job if it didn't matter to me I, i feel like i found my calling so thank you again thank you and i want to thank everybody for listening to veterans radio today i am jim fossone It's been a pleasure to be your host. I'm a veterans disability lawyer at Legal Help for Veterans, and you can reach us at 800-693-4800 or legalhelpforveterans.com on the web. You can follow Veterans Radio on Facebook and listen to its podcasts and Internet radio shows by visiting us at veteransradio.org. That's veteransradio.org. And until next time, you are dismissed. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. We again want to thank our national sponsors, the National Veterans Business Development Council, nvbdc.org, VA Ann Arbor Health Care System, the Vietnam Veterans of America, Charles S. Kettles Chapter, Ann Arbor, Michigan. VFW Graf O'Hara Post 423 in Ann Arbor. And the American Legion Press Corn Post 46, also in Ann Arbor. We appreciate all your support. You can go to veteransradio.net, click on the sponsor level, and continue to support keeping Veterans Radio on the air. And until next time... You are dismissed.